you know, sex can be a pain reliever. Oh, it's a good pain reliever. Whether you are by yourself or playing touchy-feely with somebody else or, you know, full-on going at it, like, it can be a great pain reliever. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be careful and work within the limitations that your body has or that your partner's body has. Right. Or or even, you know, that your mental state allows depending on what you've got going on. You know, I've got PTSD, and so there are some times where being intimate is not going to be on my radar. (laughs) And so that's something you have to, to kind of balance out too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's something that's so not talked about, whether it's actual sex or playing around and having fun or how we see ourselves, how we interact with other people. Hey there and happy new year. Welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gill. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. If you're new to the show, welcome. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Each person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatment or lifestyle changes, as will come up again and again and again on this show. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Kirsten Schultz, my guest from episode 10. We talk about how and why Kirsten started the Twitter hashtag chronic sex. Starting this Thursday, she will be hosting regular weekly Twitter chats as a safe space to talk more openly about self-care, self-love, sexuality, and intimacy in the context of chronic illness. You can follow along and or participate on Thursday evenings starting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitter using the hashtag chronic sex. You can find Kirsten on Twitter at Kirstie Schultz and find her blog at notstandingstillsdisease.com. During our conversation in today's episode, we also talk about our own experiences with these topics and touch on physical therapy and more patient advocacy. Given many people's New Year's resolutions have to do with their physical body, I think this is a great conversation to start the year off with. Most of what we're discussing in this episode is sexuality and intimacy, and we touch on gender only in passing. I know that some people don't realize there's actually a difference between these things. This is stuff most doctors and medical practitioners don't even know, and that lack of knowledge and understanding can be very traumatizing for people seeking care. As Dr. Jill said in episode 11, when you're in need of care, that's not a time that you should have to shore up your empowerment or have to educate others on your body. There are very few resources for medical professionals to learn more about this, so I'm hoping to cover gender issues a lot more on the podcast in the future. As always, I'll include links in the show notes to learn more, but I'll try and explain a little bit about this now. The term binary originates from mathematics and computing, but put simply, means a system with two options. It's often used to describe the dominant social constructs of good or evil, black or white, disability or ability, illness or health, and in the context of today's episode, male or female, straight or gay. 
Binary systems don't allow for anything in between or beyond the two options presented and don't accurately reflect the spectrum that so many of these things exist on. When we use the term sex in today's conversation, we're talking about the act of having sex, but sex can also be used to mean biological sex, which refers to a person's anatomy, physical attributes like external sex organs, sex chromosomes, and internal reproductive structures. We typically think about this in the binary of male and female bodies, but intersex conditions occur naturally in all species. Intersex refers to a variety of conditions in which an individual is born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that does not fit the typical understanding of female or male bodies. Historically, and unfortunately to this day, the medical establishment has done a pretty bad job of dealing with this, but there are activists working very hard to change that. Gender identity is an individual's deeply held sense of being male, female, another gender, or no gender at all. For trans and gender expansive individuals, their gender identity does not always align with the physical characteristics they were born with and the gender assigned to them as a result. For some, that is clear from an early age, while others don't know why their assigned gender doesn't feel right to them until much later in life. We refer to those who have the privilege of biology and gender identities that match as cisgendered, cis meaning on the side of in Latin. While this is the dominant experience for our culture, it should not be viewed as the default because it winds up leaving large groups of people out. Gender expression is the way that we show our gender to the world around us. And because of societal norms and stigma, people don't always express their gender identity in the way that they would prefer. This is why a trans woman may feel that she needs to continue to live her life in public as a man or vice versa. This is why some people might choose to dress in a gender normative way in circumstances such as work or family gatherings to avoid judgment, being ostracized, or rude comments from those who don't understand. On the other hand, sexual orientation is about our physical, emotional, and or romantic attractions to others. People may identify as straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, pansexual, asexual, the list continues to grow. I know this can all be very confusing, but allowing people to express their gender and sexualities in ways that feel natural to them is vital to a person's sense of self. Gender and sexuality are dynamic, and it seems like our culture is only just now starting to understand that and beginning to embrace spectrum models in relation to both. Many people feel very strongly that they belong on one end of the binary or the other, but for the rest of us, it's a great big wide world and I'm excited to watch it grow. In last week's episode, I mentioned that I was going to put out a year-end list of favorite podcast episodes from 2015 that relate to some of the stuff we talked about so far on In Sickness and In Health, and as it turns out, I am a liar. I'm still getting used to a new medication and it feels like my brain is full of rocks. So I haven't been doing much of any writing or thinking for that matter. I may still put one out, but if you're interested in getting podcast recommendations from me, you can subscribe to our mailing list from insicknesspod.com. I'll be including recommended episodes with each week's email. The mailing list is just one way to keep up with the show, but you can also follow us on Twitter and on Tumblr and Instagram at InSicknessPod. You can like us on Facebook as well as subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. I hope 2016 will be a great year for InSickness and in health. now that I mostly know what I'm doing. 
If you have any feedback or suggestions of topics to cover or people I should talk to, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at insicknesspod at gmail.com and I promise I will answer your email eventually. There is so much that I want to do that would be much easier if I had a staff or at least a research intern or a booker, but I am doing what I can with what I have. I want to talk to more different kinds of people with different experiences, do more topical series, maybe even finally get my shit together and get some music for the podcast, make the podcast more interactive, make the podcast more accessible, and be better about coordinating transcriptions of the episodes. And I am most excited to cover more disability history and more of the science behind some of what we deal with. I have so many things that I want to do with the show, so I'm just hoping I have the spoons to pursue it all. I get really excited just thinking about it, but then I need to take a nap. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't already. It helps other people find the show, which helps me keep the episodes coming. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, I, I just am coming off of having to do PT, you know, physical therapy pretty intensely twice a week for the last couple of weeks. And Which so, is exhausting. Oh my gosh, right? Like, yeah. I have been sleeping like a baby. <laughs> yeah, I actually had to quit physical therapy because I couldn't, like, get home afterwards. Uh-huh. I would just be so exhausted and like it's it's like a 15 20 minute drive from my house which isn't very far but it's across uh, it's across the Hudson River so I have to go across a big bridge and it's like traffic and you know stuff like that and I just like was getting to the point where it was it was a danger to my health to continue to go to physical therapy which is unfortunate um because with EDS you know you can't just go see any physical therapist a lot Mm -mm. of what PTs will do will actually make us worse. And so I found somebody who had worked with EDS patients before and was really open to learning more. And she was awesome. And, you know, she created a whole home program for me that I, of course, didn't actually do. Um, yes. And now and now I'm back to my weird flappy body. But um, oh, I hate that. Yeah, I hate that so much. Yeah, I'm um, really mad at myself. <laughs> You know, I, I've been in PT several times, and this is the first time where it's really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what? like the last time I did PT, they had me do water therapy, Ooh. which can be really great for us because, you know, the, the water removes a lot of pressure placed on your body right. from your weight and, you know, helps your joints move in a much more smooth and consistent manner. Mm-hmm. But I was finding myself very much in the same predicament that you were just describing. Um, the the job I was working at at the time, I had Fridays off. So I would go Friday morning and go do my water therapy. And then I would come home and I would just sleep yep. for the rest of the afternoon. There was no way I could do anything else. Yeah. Um, and I was wiped out the rest of the weekend because that was usually like methotrexate night or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever other medication I was taking night. So you know, it, it was kind of a crappy start to a weekend. Um, and now, you know, thankfully I found a medication that's working to control my still's disease. So I'm, I've got a lot more energy, which is just weird, but, um, <laughs> you know, and my don't know what to do with yourself. No, it, it, like the first couple weeks that I was on this medication, like I couldn't sleep because I was just so wired. So I would like, I slept on the couch instead of here in my bedroom with my husband for like, 
you know, like it wouldn't be every night, but it was, you know, three nights this week, four nights that week. Mm -hmm. So I would just stay up and watch something or play a video game because I just couldn't sleep. Um, Now that I I am doing my PT and I'm coming off of that and really getting into this home program, um, it's really helping me sleep because, you know, I'm exhausted. Yeah. and, and the nice thing is, like, the PT I was seeing, she's an integrated physical therapist, so she's very focused on your whole body and, like, let's pinpoint what's not working in your whole body and let's work on it instead of just, well, let's look at your shoulder. Right. Um, and the nice thing about her, too, is she's on the local arthritis foundation board and so she's oh, very nice. – yeah, she's very in tune with what people with rheumatic conditions need and what – you know, at what point we need to stop. So, you know, her theory is always no pain. Like, don't push yourself to the point it hurts. Do one less right. than you think, you know. Um, which, which is, is the really... opposite of what a lot of physical therapists will do. Like, our approach was, okay, I'm always going to have pain, but if the pain starts to get worse, that's when we stop. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of physical therapists will push, will push you to, you know, play through the pain or, or whatever it is because the pain means you're healing or whatever. And for certain conditions, that's actually extremely destructive. Yeah. Like the whole no pain, no gain thing <laughs> just drives me bonkers. Yeah. Like, especially now, again, like where my disease is controlled and I'm really being able to focus on my body. Like how – how do you push through all that pain on a normal basis? Like, how am I alive right now? But also, like, <laughs> how did I go through physical therapy before? It was yeah. like, nope, you have to keep going. I know it hurts, but you got to do 10. Like, there's no way. And I think that turns a lot of people with chronic oh, for sure, off. For sure. And I hear that all of the time in the EDS community, you know, because they just go see whoever physical therapist and then – you know, they actually get injured or they, you know, are pushed to a point with their fatigue that they actually wind up setting themselves back, you know, several months. Um, And it, you know, a lot of people for that reason then do not want to try physical therapy again, you know, even in a situation that they would, they would likely benefit from it in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, And that's really unfortunate because, like, you know, we don't have a lot of options for treatment. So if you get kind of turned off of that early, then that can be a real, a real bummer. Mm-hmm. Especially like with so many of these conditions where motion is really good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, the whole reason that I've gotten into the home program that we set up was because there were one or two days where I couldn't do it. I was just exhausted and, and it was kind of a mild flare to be honest. And I slept for like two days on the couch. <laughs> and by the time I went back to physical therapy, like three days after that, I could barely move. Like I wasn't moving enough to get the lubrication in my joints, to get my muscles to where they were getting enough blood, like whatever. And I really felt it. Mm-hmm. And it was really the first time where I went, Oh, okay. So I'm going to have to stick with this every day for the rest of my life if I don't want to turn into the Tin Man. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, I will make my peace with that for right now. And does that mean I'm going to stick with it forever? <laughs> but for right now, 
as it gets freaking cold here in Wisconsin, I will deal with it. (laughs) But, you know, before I got my referral to this physical therapist, I was just convinced, especially based on, you know, doing the water therapy that I had done, that there was no way physical therapy was going to be able to help me. And the Mm -hmm. only reason I went um, was I started seeing a new rheumatologist at the beginning of this year, specifically so I could get on the medication that I'm on, um, but also because she's great. And, and she's also on the local arthritis foundation board. Oh, nice. oh God, I love her. And, um, you know, so she's like, I think you should go see D. I really think you should. She's great. She'll work really nicely with you. And that was the only reason I went. Like, if mm-hmm. I had been seeing my past practitioner, even if they had referred me to the same person, I would have been like, mm, yeah. Remember how that worked out, like, a year and a half ago? <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting balance. It is. It's really, I mean, especially when fatigue plays such a, a huge role in it. Because um, that's the most disabling thing for me is that, like, and we've tried everything to try mm-hmm. and address that issue. And it gets in the way of so much, um, including what we intended to talk about, which is, you know, sex and sexuality. Uh, this is a, a nice segue. Um because it's just, you know, I barely have energy to feed myself or, you know, meet my most basic of needs. How am I supposed to have energy to do phys- physical things like physical therapy or, you know, sexy time or whatever the case may be? Yeah, it's it's a very common thing that I've heard um, as I've kind of started looking more into how those of us with chronic illness see sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this chronic sex idea that I have is is focused not only on sex, but also on how mm. we interact with our partner, um, on how we interact with ourselves. Yeah. Um, Which is like the most basic building block of sexuality, I think. Exactly. I think... I think a lot of us, um, at least from what I've seen, there's a lot of um, downplaying of our illnesses by people around us. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of... um, Downplaying it to ourselves, even. Exactly. It's it's ableism, really. Oh, for sure. Um, And then we internalize it. And Mm -hmm. so instead of it just being, well, I don't know how you're going to get to physical therapy every day. It's... Well, God, you're right. I don't know how I'm going to get physical therapy and what's it going to do for me. I, it's not going to do anything for me and I'm wasting my time and I could be doing something productive with my time or like, I don't know, sleeping and why am I doing this? And so that ableism becomes internalized and then mm-hmm. we put ourselves down. And when we do that, not only does it eat away at our self-esteem, it removes our ability to treat ourselves with love, kindness, and care. Mm-hmm. And so anything that we would do nice for ourselves either becomes non-existent or goes overboard into a very negative place. So, you know, you might treat yourself with, I don't know, a nice piece of chocolate cake one day. I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. But when you've made a cake and then you eat the whole cake. Okay, that might be a problem. In a day, yeah. like I did like two weeks ago, <laughs> um, then that's a problem. Yeah. And, you know, then, you, then it becomes a thing where we really need to check in with ourselves about how we're feeling about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that day 
it happened to be my my arthritis anniversary and I went okay I will give myself a pass today because it's a crappy day Mm -hmm. but next time we're not gonna eat a whole cake (laughs) you know um just half of a cake yeah, I mean, half a cake is great. Go for <laughs> I mean, it was like an eight by eight. It's not oh, like wow. a whole sheet okay. cake, yeah. right? But yeah. still, whole cake. Um, <laughs> at least I know I make good chocolate cake. Yeah, you know, and and I think it really, um, the the more we downplay how great we are, the more that impacts our relationships. With, not only with ourselves, but with other people. Absolutely. Um, and then that impacts, obviously, how we see ourselves as sexy. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think sexy is just, you know, Victoria's secret angels walking with these big gaudy wings that eight turkeys probably died to make. Like, <laughs> you know, and they haven't eaten in like three yeah. days so they can walk. It's just, that's such a specific and narrow idea of what sexy is, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's such a shame that uh, kind of mainstream culture really limits sexy, at least for, you know, mainstream straight cisgendered women. Mm-hmm. That's what sexy is. And like, what a shame because there's so many other different kinds of sexy out there. Oh, for sure. For sure. And it's, it's sad. I think it's sad, too. And, you know, if we go back to that idea of internalized ableism. Okay, so I am never in a million years going to look like one of those runway models. Right. Probably never going to be able to balance those, like, 30-pound wings nope. on, on my angry neck. I cannot Sleep wear out. high heels. Uh, I'm definitely not going to be walking around in lingerie in front of millions mm. of people. That's not going to happen. No, no. I'll, I'll do that at home. Oh, sure. I will do that at home. Sure. Sweet, but no. Um, and, I mean, there, there's this idea that we all have to look a certain way, that we all right. have to act a certain way. And it's it's interesting. I think we talk about it a lot, about how it affects women, mm-hmm. which is very, you know, a very important subject, especially as it can, you know, be the cause for a lot of women developing eating disorders. Right. Or, or if not the cause, a contributing factor for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not talked about that much how it affects men or, or, you know, trans people or non-binary people or agendered people like that doesn't even, like, we definitely don't talk about how it affects men and we for sure don't talk about how it affects people that don't fit in that, you know, traditional binary. Oh, exactly. It's not even on the radar for anybody really, you know, um, and I think we really have to be real about our about sexuality in general too. Like, you're not just one thing or another thing. Like, there's right. this whole spectrum. Or and really, on. why limit yourself? <laughs> exactly. I mean, right. And it doesn't matter. You know, we we all change throughout our lives and throughout specific moments in our lives with a, with many things. Like, mm-hmm. we might like a certain soup as we're growing up and then we get in our teens and we're like ah this soup is disgusting i feel that way about campbell's tomato like, soup i loved it it was my favorite thing in the world growing up and now i i won't eat soup from a can I, i've become a soup snob i that, I, de- I demand yeah. fresh soup 
That was exactly what I was thinking about, actually. Yeah. I loved tomato soup Ugh. when I was little. Oh, man. And then, like, I turned, like, eight, and I was like, oh, this is nasty. <laughs> like, yeah. get away. <laughs> but I'll, I'll eat a nice tomato bisque. Oh, of course. Delicious. No problem. But, um, so, yeah, chronic sex and soup. Uh, <laughs> Same thing. It, pretty much. <laughs> Do you like bacon bits in your soup? <laughs> <laughs> do you like it cream based or 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 uh what what other uh do you stock like based? To dip it in bread or do you mm. like a bread bowl mm. <laughs> so many choices so many see and sexuality is just like soup you can do so many things with it it's true right you can um, get it from a can you can make it from scratch <laughs> you can buy it from a store you can mm-hmm. um but yeah, and it's it's just interesting we how we don't address as a society what the notions of sexuality that are fed to us mm-hmm. um, really do to us. I mean, if you ask any single person, they'll probably tell you either that the ideas of sexuality regarding any gender are, you know, BS, or... They'll tell you, oh, yeah, no, women are supposed to, you know, walk around in lingerie or men are supposed to have six pack abs or, you know, any number of things. And it's just it's very detrimental mm-hmm. to our mental health and to our emotional health um, and ultimately to our physical to our health. physical health. Absolutely. Yeah, because mm-hmm. sex is so I mean, I'll just say sex is awesome. Yeah. If you are in the mood for sex, sex is awesome. Right. If everyone involved is a consenting adults and everyone is cool with what's going on, it is the greatest. Exactly. Um, but, you know, sometimes sex might be not, not your thing or sure. you might not be into it. And that's fine, too. And I think, you know, those are things that we have to address, especially right. in the chronic illness community. Yeah. Um, you know, sex can be a pain reliever. Oh, it's a good pain reliever. Whether you are by yourself or playing touchy-feely with somebody else or, you know, full-on going at it, like, it can be a great pain reliever. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be careful and work within the limitations that your body has or that your partner's body has. Right. Um, or, Or even, you know, that your mental state allows, depending on what you've got going on, you know. I've got PTSD, and so there are some times where being intimate is not going to be on my radar, (laughs) or where suddenly it's just very much not going to be on my radar, and so that's something you have to to kind of balance out, too, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's something that's so not talked about, whether whether it's actual sex or playing around and having fun or... um, you know, again, how we how we see ourselves, how we interact with other people. Um, and I mean, I, I could go really philosophical on this and talk about how, you know, all these beauty companies make kajillions of dollars off of us. And so that's part of why. <laughs> right. And know. now they're they're making kajillions of dollars off of like these like the, the Dove Real Beauty campaign, which I find hilarious. <laughs> yes. It's such like nice thought. But terrible execution. And so... Where's the girl in the wheelchair? Yeah. And so many body positive... Like, allegedly body positive campaigns completely leave out people with disabilities. And 
that's ridiculous because we have bodies too. And wait, this you know, is a body I'm in. Yeah, Whoa. I know, right? <laughs> you know, we have bodies, we have needs, and just because you're disabled doesn't mean that you don't want or need sex. And like, sure, like there's I I I don't want to say that everyone wants or needs sex because that's not true. You know, asexual people absolutely do exist, and there's nothing wrong with them because they're asexual. Um, but you know, there's also plenty of other people who aren't asexual and do have sexual needs, and just because they have physical issues doesn't mean that those automatically kind of dissipate or disappear. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And I think too, you know, like we were kind of just talking about, there's, there are different ways of getting some sort of sexual satisfaction or gratification. Um, You know, I have seen news stories talking about people who are paraplegic but that have sensation in maybe their toe. Mm -hmm. And so that being a very sensual thing for them, um, Mm. for somebody to play with and, and do fun things with. And, but it's still something that's sexy for somebody. And it's, you know, it's something we need to talk about. Yeah. In, in the chronic illness community, but in society at large, like, everybody's so different and we all have different needs and wants and fears and goals. And, um, you know, I think there's just this great, um, you know, overgeneralization of what we all want and what Mm -hmm. we all should be. Um, and I think that's really the root of this is, well, let's, let's get individual. Let's talk about, you know, why Jenny isn't having a good time with her husband or, you know, why Dean is having a hard time being intimate with his wife or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. let's talk about it and let's address it. Let's think about what we can do to help other people in similar situations. Right. Instead of just pretending it doesn't exist or that it's a given that, you know, after you've been together for a while, you're just going to stop having sex and you, you know, maybe one or both of the partners will start having sex with other people and, you know, not talk to each other about the fact that they're not having sex and that sort of thing. Um, Actually, last week's episode of uh, the Death, Sex and Money podcast hosted by Anna Sale from WNYC. which is a great show all around Uh, but they actually did an episode on people like they had people call in and talk about like why they're not having sex and that was actually really fascinating because even just within the the sphere of not having sex there were so many individual stories and so many individualized reasons that that was happening or not happening in their case for them Um, and it's just you know, it's a lot of times there's like this assumption that like, if you're, if you're not having sex, there's something wrong with you or you're like weird and religious or, you know, like there's all of these weird assumptions that come with this stuff. And, and rarely are those things ever actually true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I've been, um, you know, talking to somebody that I, I care about very much about dealing with realizing that this person is asexual Mm-hmm. and you know them worrying about how it's affecting their partner or that it means that there's something wrong with them and that they're not they're not a good person because mm-hmm. they're not satisfying their partner or they're not doing what society is telling them they should do um and it's I think there have 
there have been a lot of movements lately to raise more awareness about various sexual identities and sexual orientations. And that's really helped this person, um, you know, to be able to show them like, Hey, this is what I think might be going on with you. Right. Like this is actually a thing. It's not, there's nothing wrong with you. This is, this is a real thing that like other people experience and it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Exactly. And you know, sexual compatibility can be a make or break thing for some people Mm -hmm. and you know luckily this person isn't in that situation um but it's you know for some people that can be a really difficult thing right um it's something that I think should be addressed early on in any relationship um because let's be real those of us who are interested in sex probably are gonna have sex at some point in our relationship right (laughs) and we should probably address it yeah. Um, and that also might change over the course of the relationship. So, like, even if you do address it early on, you know, it might be a good idea to revisit it, you know, several years down the line or whatever the case may be. You know, uh, a lot of people have a hard time kind of getting back into the groove um, after they've had children. And uh, another plug for another WNYC podcast, uh, The Longest Shortest Time, they did an episode called The Parent's Guide to Doing It. Uh, They actually, there's two episodes. The second one, the most recent one, uh, was a live episode that they did with a sex educator and an OBGYN. And they talked about, you know, getting, getting back into the sack, basically, after having kids and then not having sex for a long time. And I think that actually would be a helpful conversation to listen to for people that maybe are just coming out of a flare or maybe were feeling really terrible for a long time but are starting to feel a little bit better and want to get back in touch with their bodies. Um, Because I think that that's something that is also not really talked about. That, you know, sometimes you can be very sexual and sometimes you can be not sexual at all and you can, you're still the same person, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think it's, um, I think it could be hard too. like you just mentioned coming out of a flare, um, you know, for the last eh, seven years or so, um, maybe six or seven, I have been in a very heightened disease activity mm-hmm. time period. Um, and in that time period, I've been diagnosed with way too many things to list <laughs> off. But, um, you know, it, it can be hard, one, for people with multiple chronic illnesses. Like, so I have my Stills disease and I have my fibromyalgia and maybe my Stills disease is doing great. And I'm like, yeah, my yeah. knees can handle like certain positions. Yes. And then my fibromyalgia speaks up and says, hi, no, nobody Please can don't touch, touch me anywhere. Please just don't touch me. Yeah. Exactly. I'm very familiar with that feeling. Oh, allodynia is not my favorite. No. Um, you know, and, and so that can be hard too. Yeah. But then also, you know, if you're in a long-term relationship, like I am with my husband, we've known each other for what seems like forever. Sometimes it's really difficult when you have when you go from that lover on mm-hmm. equal plane idea to that caregiver. Yeah. Care well, that's meter. a huge thing. I mean, that's a, you know, a, a interesting kind of power dynamic there. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, being the caregiver or the caregivee, I don't, patient, I don't know what the term is. I don't know. <laughs> 
um, you know, that can really change how you see your partner on either end of it um, Mm -hmm. and kind of removes the sexuality from that person and also from yourself. This is something that I personally have been really struggling with that, like, I don't after being very sick for the last couple of years, I don't feel like a sexual being anymore. And I don't know if my partner still views me that way. And, you know, and since we're, since we haven't talked about it, um, you know, so this is all do as I say, not as I do. Um, mm-hmm. Because this is something that I personally struggle with too. Um, no, but, I feel you. I, yeah. I'm in a very similar boat. I mean, a little bit different, like, you know, now that I'm coming out of being in this heightened disease activity state and kind of rebuilding basically my whole life, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm finding where I felt like there had been a little bit of a power dynamic shift to like caregiver, caregivee, right? Which my husband and I kind of flip flop between because he has um, some issues with, with depression too. And yeah. so, and my partner know. also has a chronic illness. So that, that does totally add in a whole other dynamic of like, oh, well, we both have problems. and <laughs> We're both having a crappy day. Let's order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm finding myself coming out of that you know, kind of perpetual need to weave in and out of the caregive state. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, what's our relationship like now? I mean, like, right. it's great, but what's the power dynamic? Like, are we equal, equal now? Am, am I going to be more caregiver and you're going to be more caregive Like, and trying to navigate that, that can, you know, when it flip-flops so much, that can play a really big role in our sexuality. And especially, right. like, like I said, if, if you're both having a bad day and you guys just want to eat pizza, like clothes or not clothes, whatever, like. Yeah. I mean, for for my partner and I, you know, like f- our good days almost never line up. Like, oh, yeah. If I'm having a good day, he's doubled over with abdominal pain. If he's having a good day, I can't move because I'm so tired and in pain, you know. And then on top of that, there's also, you know, medication side effects of like low mm-hmm. libido and then like the body image issues, you know, for him. He's lost a ton of weight. I've gained a ton of weight. <laughs> you know, like what? I don't even know my body anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't even mm-hmm. know. It's. I feel very out of touch with my own body. Yeah, this is. I think. I think this chronic sex movement will be a really good thing, because, I mean, so like for me, most of what I do, most of what I write about, comes out of very personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Like, I've written about my sex life before on my blog. Um, my father-in-law reads my blog, so <laughs> yes, you know. And it, at first, I was like a little like, hmm, maybe I don't want my father-in-law to read this. And then I kind of got to this point, like my father-in-law has Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, like my father-in-law were both on Humira at the same time, <laughs> like talking turkey about you know giving shots, and you know, so it's it's interesting because as much as like. For me, there's that personal disconnect of like, okay, I do not want you to know about my sex life yeah. with your son. <laughs> there's also like, well, I mean, I don't want to think about it, but maybe it'll help you and your wife. Yeah. Or maybe it'll help somebody you know. Or, you know, like, that's kind of where all my stuff comes from is, right. yeah, I'll share some really personal kind of gross TMI stuff. But it's like, 
if you don't know that somebody else is going through it, you probably think they're exactly. as weird as I do. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And my general rule of thumb is like, if something is weird and awkward to talk about it and people don't usually talk about it, that means we need to talk about it way more. Exactly. Like, we need to talk about it so much because no one's talking about it. And that's, you know, that just further reinforces stigma and and further reinforces ableism and all of the the bad stuff that comes along with this stuff but you know if you shine a light on it kind of open the windows let 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 it air out a bit you know exactly i mean it's i like to think about it as like a relationship Mm -hmm. you know just like we think about a relationship if one partner is not going to talk about anything at all and the other partner's not sure if they should bring it up. Like, you should bring it up. Like, right. communication is important, whether that's on a big system-wide, society-wide level, or you and your loved one in the bedroom. Like, whether that involves sexy times or not. Like, right. communication is the biggest, like, strong point that everybody needs to have in order to function in the world I think yeah. and and you know communication can be so many different things it it doesn't just have to be speaking or writing it can be sign language like there's so many different ways you can communicate that it's that this is being ableist but like you know it's communication is the biggest thing if if nobody knows there's a problem right nobody can fix the problem yes or, or what, what the actual issues are, because, you know, there might be this conception that it's one way, but it's actually something else entirely, you know. Exactly. Um, for instance, you know, somebody might assume that the reason that I am not getting it on very often is because I'm in pain all the time or, you know, something like that. But it's actually has way more to do with the fatigue factor and that sort of thing. And so if you're trying to solve one problem that isn't actually the problem, you know, like the pain problem, let's say, but you're not addressing the fatigue problem, which is the bigger problem, then how is that really helpful? Exactly. Oh, my God. Like, I just have to say fatigue is the worst. The worst. I can deal with anything, like, throw abscess, wisdom, tooth, pain at me, like, throw whatever else at me you want, but don't give me the fatigue. Yeah. And I can totally handle it. Yeah. But when you put the fatigue in the mix, it just, it kills everything. Well, I mean, it's, it's the most basic factor necessary for life, basically. Like, you know, if... Like, for a while, we were kind of looking at, like, well, maybe I have, like, a mitochondrial disorder or dysfunction, and that's still possible, but, you know, it's just kind of, there's not enough research there, and there's not enough information, especially for adults. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I was trying mitochondrial supplements and, and, and learning about that sort of thing. And so if, you're, if your body – and the mitochondria, put simply, in your body are, are, like, the powerhouses of your cells. They produce the energy needed for the cells to function. So if they're not working properly, your cells aren't going to function properly. And if your cells aren't functioning properly, like, your body is not functioning properly. Your life isn't functioning properly. Um, It's Learning about that was really interesting because it helped me to understand it on, on a literally kind of molecular level and understand 
how integral fatigue or, or how integral energy is in so many different bodily functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I always like to think about too, you know, the old scientific idea of the energy can't be destroyed or created. You can just transform it. Right. And so one of the ways that I kind of practice self-care and self-love when I'm having very high fatigue, very low energy days, um, like I used to be somebody who did everything. Like I pushed through everything. I would help everybody. Um, I didn't take naps. Naps were a waste of time. You were not productive during naps. Like I could have been doing a million things during those two days I napped like a couple weeks ago. Which is hilarious because like, no, but you wouldn't have. I wouldn't have, but you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think it's interesting to kind of think about the idea about energy can't be created or destroyed. It's just transformed or, or, you know, used in a different way. Um, you know, for me, if I'm having a low energy day, it helps remind me that my body is working mm-hmm. really, really hard Yeah, for me to be able to breathe, for me to be able to drink water. Like it's working so hard so that I can at least try to accomplish the most basic of functions. And it really helps, you know, me to treat myself with care and treat myself like I appreciate myself instead of going like, oh my God, you're worthless. You're sitting on the couch all day. (laughs) So this whole chronic sex idea kind of came out of one of the other conferences that I was at earlier this year, um, which is the Arthritis Introspective National Gathering. Um, and Arthritis Introspective is actually pairing up with the Arthritis Foundation to kind of be their post, like, juvenile arthritis camp, like, okay. support. So, you know, once you age out of, like, if you have juvenile arthritis, once you age out of camp, mm-hmm. um, once you kind of turn 18, then then Arthritis Introspective would kind of be your main support group. Okay. Um, and so their national gathering this year was actually in Milwaukee, which is about um, an hour and a half away from me. So I drove back and forth each day. Oh, wow. <laughs> which wasn't the best idea, but it was fine. Um, and they actually had one of the days, one of the breakout sessions was about sex and intimacy. And um, they had this great woman come from a very um, – feminist-based sex shop in Milwaukee. I love those places. They're the best. It was so great. Um, It's called The Tool Shed, and it's fantastic. I know. Um, A bunch of us actually went after the session to The Tool Shed just to, like, go look. And, you know, she talked a lot about how, um, you know, sometimes doctors don't know some of the things that, affect our sexuality whether it's mm-hmm. the fatigue being so bad or different or even if they know they have no idea like you know they right. might intellectually know that a medication might cause a lowered libido or that fatigue might get in the way but they don't really understand what that actually means for the patient exactly um and sometimes they get so focused on treating your condition that they don't yeah. think about your quality of life yes it's like you know, I kind of like to have sex, so <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. Um, 
And, like, I volunteered a lot with Planned Parenthood when I was in high school and and doing very sex-positive stuff with them. Um, And that's kind of been a running theme through my life, which is nice. But uh, really going to this session where other people really had so many questions for this amazing woman about, you know, her personal stuff as she had lupus. Um, and, and talking about what she does for certain things to talking about sex aids and self-exploration and all that good stuff, um, actually got me to writing with creaky joints, which is one of the big arthritis websites, um, about, you know, kind of this idea of self-love and relationships and sex. And so that's kind of where this whole chronic sex chat is coming out of was this great great um national gathering that arthritis introspective put on and you know the focus that we really have to be positive about ourselves um in order to be fully engaged in relationships um and and there's not i think there's a little bit of a a disparity between how that phrase could be taken in like quote unquote normal people life versus our lives. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, quote unquote normal people life. It's like, well, you can't love anybody until you love yourself. Right. Our life is like, well, um, no, like (laughs) it doesn't quite work that way. Right. Like the opposite is true for me. Like it took my husband showing me that I was kind of awesome Mm -hmm. for me to go, Oh, Okay, yeah, I am well, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, you can't always hold the mirror up yourself. Sometimes you need somebody else to, to hold it for you. Right. And I think that's especially true with chronic illness. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes it's not your spouse or your partner. Sometimes it's your sister. Sometimes it's your best friend, you know. Right. It's, it can be anybody, I think. And it can um, be a combination of those people, too. Oh, for sure. And sometimes it can just be something random. Mm. Um, I don't know if you watched it yet, but the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It was an interesting, um, an interesting examination of how PTSD or any chronic illness really um, can affect your life and how you can kind of be strong in spite of that. I hate the word strong because of the yeah. negative ableist connotations, but you know, I get you what can you be understand. resilient. Yeah. Whatever. The buzzword of the moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so it can, you know, that, that realization that you're worthy of love can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. It, it can come from a Netflix show. It could come from Bob's burgers. I don't know how, but it probably could. <sighs> I love Bob's burgers also so much. <laughs> Um, to bring it back around to the sex stuff, uh, you got a chance to go to Stanford's Medicine X conference this year, which sounds super fun. Um, and they actually did a panel on, uh, sex and intimacy. Um, did you have any big takeaways from seeing that panel? I, uh, I wasn't able to watch the live feed, but I did follow along on Twitter. So I know a little bit about what was talked about there. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, you know, the nice thing about the panel is that because it was smaller, because it was during, you know, a breakout session time, um, 
there was much more of a dialogue kind of between the panel and the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, you know, the the panel was mostly patients. There, um, there was a medical student up there, and, and a one of the patients is also a physician. So, um, you know, the it was equally represented, but, um, you know, everybody kind of brought up, well, you know, we might have a lot of issues with sex and sexuality, but we don't bring them up because it's awkward and we wish our physicians would bring them up. Um, and Ronnie Zeger, who, um, co-founded Smart Patients and is amazing, used to work for Google, like all around (laughs) freaking awesome person. Um, you know, kind of was like, I just want to try something in, like, sometimes, you know, Ronnie's a, a very part-time clinician in, in his own right. Like, like he will admit it, very part-time. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there are a lot of physicians that don't bring up these things because of whatever's going on in their life. Right. You know, and, and I think that's something that we have to kind of consider. Um, you know, a lot of us really want to have physicians that are very interactive with us that that we connect with on a personal level that are very into the shared decision making process and patient centered care but I think that goes two ways yeah Um, and also they're trained to do the exact opposite exactly (laughs) of all of those things exactly um which it's nice to see um you know Stanford did a little two-day conference at the beginning of Medicine X, um, actually, that was MedX Ed, mm-hmm. that was all focused on medical students and the medical education process. Which um, is a, lot a disaster. Them, oh, it was awful. But, you know, a lot of them were able to stick around for the whole thing and um, were very receptive to um you know, patient feedback, you know, one of the things that they did during their little conference was they had um, kind of these design tables. So they had several medical students and then they'd have a patient and they had to design a solution for a problem. And then the patient had to be like, well, so that doesn't work in real life because <laughs> da, 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 da. And so the students were very receptive to that and very mm-hmm. um, willing to kind of change things around, which is much different than, um, say, like, the physicians that I work with right. at yeah. my job. Like. The younger generation is definitely a very different kind of physician. Um, I, tr- I purposefully seek out younger doctors, um, you know, and, and which isn't to, to say that, you know, experience and w- wisdom gained from uh, a lifetime of clinical work isn't valuable. It very much is. But, um, you know, our, our medical knowledge as humans doubles something like every three years, you know, so old school doctors that have a very old school approach, like, I don't have a very old school disease. I have a very (laughs) not old school body that needs a not old school approach. And so I I purposefully seek out younger physicians and, um, you know, the friends that I have that are currently training to be doctors. And I actually did um, a five day workshop at Columbia uh, in uh, narrative medicine that they had for mostly for medical students, but I kind of elbowed my way in. And that was amazing to be in a room full of people who 
all really want to make medicine more collaborative and more more human based you know mm -hmm. like human centered patient centered all of that is good stuff and that's that's something that I think a lot of the younger doctors are more interested in than the old school ones oh for sure and I think that there's two um you know there's more of a focus for them on treating you as a whole person yeah instead of treating you as your EDS or right. as your other diagnoses. Like Which, I mean, you know, they're all so specialized in their organ systems that when you have something as systemic as EDS or even as systemic as Stoltz disease, you know, you're not getting, even if they are treating your whole EDS, you're still that, you know, if you're only getting it from one specialty, it's, I don't, I'm having a hard time articulating this thought, but. Does that no, sense? yeah, it, it doesn't um, – it might not help you as much right. just because there is so much that is all-encompassing about yeah. your illness, right? Yeah. Like for me, when I, when I first started getting actual medical care um, in 2010 as an adult with insurance, woo, um, I – had a really hard time interacting with physicians mm -hmm. just because I was like, well, okay. You know, they would ask me how long I'd have this problem. And then I'd be like, oh, <laughs> 10 years. And they'd be like, what? Well, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's or, awkward. Or like basically my whole life, why are you here now? <laughs> like, right. Um, but then you'd also have, well, you know, because of this illness, these things happen. Right. So I'm only here because it's extremely exacerbated and I want to pass out. Um, and so then, you know, I have found, like, like you were saying, kind of the older physicians or more old school physicians that I run into just kind of blow me off as mm -hmm. being, like, a little girl who didn't right. know what I was talking about. Or that, like, you maybe, you know, if you come in and you have specific knowledge about something and you're saying, like, I'm having this problem, it's consistent, the symptoms are consistent with this thing, a lot of times the assumption is that you spent 10 minutes on WebMD and, like, right. you're like, I've diagnosed myself with this thing. And, and, you know, it's so frustrating because it's like, okay, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'm having symptoms consistent with this thing that is sometimes associated with this other thing that I have. And, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's check it out. You know, I haven't necessarily diagnosed myself with it, but I think it's a possibility. And it's just so frustrating to like hit my head against this wall that I've hit so many times in the past. You know, that actually brings up an interesting conversation that we had at Medicine X. Um, on Thursday, which is the day before the actual conference started, they had a workshop um, on designing for behavior change, which was led by Dr. Kyra Bobinette, who is amazing. Yeah, and then, and then the fabulous Britt Johnson, a.k.a. Hurt Blogger. So many good things I could say for hours and hours. <laughs> um, you know, and so, so we had this great workshop and... Um, we kind of broke off into groups after learning about how to design for behavior change. And then in our groups, we're supposed to address the main problem that we wanted to address. And my group kind of ended up being a mishmash of things because people didn't quite understand what <laughs> other people were talking about. And anyway, it got mishmashed. <laughs> and um, what we 
ultimately decided to do was we wanted to see how we could address ending paternalism Mm -hmm. in physicians. So that idea that you have to listen to the physician, um, do what he or she says, also kind of known as white coat syndrome, like, oh, their white coat means they're so smart, you must listen. Right. Um, But yeah, so so my group is trying to address paternalism in physicians. And we're like, how are we going to convince physicians to change? And then we realized that you can't. You, right. you can't get anybody to change. You can provide motivation to change. You mm-hmm. can provide um, incentives, incentives, and, monetary yeah. fun stuff, um, kudos, like whatever. But you can't make somebody change. So what we did instead was we designed this great idea um, where you take people have, who have been newly diagnosed with an illness. So I will use um, rheumatoid arthritis, just for the sake of being slightly more simple. Um, And I I think it's because that's the one I used in the presentation that we had to give at the end. But, um, you know, so you have a patient that's just been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and they want to learn all they can about their illness. So then, hypothetically, uh, a local university and the local chapter of the Arthritis Foundation put together this great series of talks and series of classes, you know, Saturday mornings, whatever. Um, maybe it's two Saturdays a month, whatever. And and that patient goes, and they can just go to the first one and get the very basics about arthritis in general, how it encompasses over 100 different diseases. Um, maybe learn a little bit more specifically about rheumatoid arthritis and maybe medicines that can treat these different autoimmune and auto-inflammatory diseases. But let's say they get super interested in it. They keep going to these classes. You know, there's there's rheumatologists that come talk. There's physical therapists that come talk. And, and you really get to learn and soak up all of this knowledge about your illness. And at the end, you get this little certificate that says, you know, Kirsten Schultz is now a certified expert in rheumatoid arthritis. And then that patient gets super excited about the idea of helping other people because they Mm -hmm. got along with the other people in this class really, really well. So then that same university and that same local arthritis foundation chapter put together this thing where you learn about leadership and mentoring and, and you go to these classes and at the end of those classes, you get another little certificate. That says, you know, oh, Kristen Schultz has been certified as an awesome leader and mentor. And then you get placed on this international registry that, you know, talks about your illness and, and, and any other, you know, concurrent illnesses or comorbidities that go along with your illnesses you might have. So you might see, you know, Sjogren's syndrome or um, Renaud's syndrome or, you know, a number of other things this mm-hmm. patient has. And it lists, you know, the general area where you live, so city, not not super specific, and has, you know, some contact information. So your email address, your phone number, and, and you've okayed that information being out there. And then any physician across the world that has a patient with that illness. So let's say, switching now, that that illness is very specific. Let's say that it's, you know, systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, a.k.a. Stills disease. And and this patient has also been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So they're looking for somebody that has knowledge on both. 
Mm-hmm. And they don't care where that person is because, hello, we live in the 21st century. Right. Um, so then they look and they find my name and, you know, they shoot me an email or they give me a call and I kind of walk them through kind of the general challenges yeah. of having this illness, you know, whether it's learning about the medications that are specific to Stowe's disease or learning about some of the ways you can cope um, that aren't necessarily medicinal in purpose, um, whether it's ice packs or hot packs or meditation or, you know, whatever. Um, and I kind of help guide that person through their process with the hope that wherever they are in the world, they can go through a similar program and help other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's something that's already being looked into. Well, that's great because, like, and I say this to people all the time, is that, you know, when you get diagnosed with something, the doctor doesn't then say, and hey, there's a ton of other people out there that have this same thing that you do or that have similar conditions that might have a lot of the same challenges that you do. Like, they don't tell you that. It's something that every single person that I've talked to in the course of doing this podcast, you know, they discovered it on their own when they went online and, and like found, oh my goodness, there's this whole sea of people, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I was actually emailing back and forth the other day with a gal um, who lives in New York who has had rheumatoid arthritis for three or four years now um, and never got an explanation of what her illness is. Ugh. Not anything from her physician. Not even Doesn't one of those crappy know. pamphlets? Nope. Doesn't Ugh. know where the local arthritis foundation office is. Doesn't know anyone there who to contact. So, you know, having a standardized handout at the end of yeah. those diagnosis visits, at least, that says, hey, here's the local arthritis foundation. Here's, you know, this person who runs, you know, maybe the juvenile arthritis program, here's, you know, another patient in the area that would be willing to help. Um, Even if it doesn't go to this huge, you know, international database, if we can at least have local resource sheets, oh my gosh. Right, because it's weird, like, reality-wise, you know, a doctor is not going to be able to sit down with you and explain all of the intricacies of your disease and the the likelihood that your doctor even knows the intricacies of your disease is actually pretty slim. And so what we need is a jumping off point. We need to have that at the very least instead of just like, you know, saying like, okay, you have this thing. I'm going to write you a prescription. Good luck with all that. Exactly. You know, so many people leave those appointments you know, they, they get their prescription for whatever medication and they're like, oh, great, this medicine's going to cure me. Yeah. Like, well, honey. It's um, a little more complicated than that. Let me get well, you some hot cocoa and a blanket and let's talk about this. Right. Like, because we live in this culture that's so focused on cures and fixing people. And if you're not fixable, you get discarded, you know. And even, you know, like we're talking about this idea of resource sheet. Maybe at the bottom have common hashtags that are used for, Mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of diseases you treat in that area. Like, if you're a rheumatologist, have all the cool rheumatology-related hashtags, like hashtag room, R-H-E-U-M. Right. right, I think. And then, you know, 
have the more basic ones like hashtag chronic life or, I mean the you know, chronic life hashtag is just which was created by Britt Johnson aka her blogger um for me was like transformative you know I had already had the idea to do this podcast but that was like one of the real catalysts where I was like oh I can do this. There, like, there is a need for this. There is, you know, people need to talk about what their lives are like while they're living with all of this bullshit. Yeah. You know? Oh my god. And she did a great talk actually at Medex mm-hmm. about the process of creating that hashtag and about kind of what she saw as the end result. You know, up up, up through September at least, and. Um, how amazing it was to watch um, the number of people, one, who were using that hashtag, but the number of people who were using that hashtag concurrently with other hashtags related to their illness. Right. So I'll be frank. There are three or four of us still disease patients that love to, you know, use the chronic life and stills disease hashtag at the same time in our tweets and stills disease was towards the top of the different you know tags that were used at the same time as the chronic life tags and Hmm. I sat there with a shitting grin on my face I was (laughs) pleased as punch but like you know I think it goes to show too like whenever you have um a movement like chronic life that um, goes across all these different chronic illness communities. Mm -hmm. It also raises awareness of specific conditions. And Um, you get that cross-pollination between conditions, which I think is so important. Cross-pollination is always a good idea, whether it's, you know, between different conditions in the chronic illness community or with something like uh, the Medics Conference where you're getting different disciplines in the same place, like we need so much more of that all of the time, constantly, uh, to kind of, cause if everything's so homogenized and everyone's in their own silos, like that's, you know, you might be working toward very specific goals in those locations, but until you actually, you know, share information and share experience and share knowledge, those very specific goals that you're working towards might be completely like off target, you know? For sure. And, you know, there there may be other people that are working on a similar thing mm-hmm. that, that you guys can help each other. Um, I, I'm putting together a proposal with somebody that I met at MedEx to, to get grant money for this great project about kind of this idea of having like a LinkedIn for patients. Ooh. You know, like, hey, let's say I, I'm picking a random university. Not really, because I'm wearing my University of Oregon pants. So let's say the University of Oregon, it's it's a Civil War game day, too. They're, they're playing Oregon State, so ah. I have to be a little, a little biased. So the University of Oregon, let's say, is trying to work on getting patient feedback about this new workflow that they're working on in their rheumatology clinics. Just very specific, right? Um, and they want to seek out patients who have rheumatology knowledge, Mm-hmm. but also have some sort of knowledge of behind-the-scenes things in clinics, like workflows, like the the medical assistant takes you to the room, and then they check you in, and they get your vitals, and, and, and how all of those things go, because mm-hmm. those are all mapped out on paper. Right. Um, so, you know, they want somebody who has the knowledge of both, and they can go on this 
patient LinkedIn and they can search by different tags and find a patient like myself who kind of works both sides of the of the fence and and go okay so I see that you have this knowledge if we compensate you this much for you know looking at these things is that good for you imagine patient compensation what a concept I know I kind of really hope it goes somewhere I would love uh, me as somebody who is not currently working and is a full-time patient I would also like to see that go somewhere um yeah I'm I'm like slowly realizing like kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation as I'm having to do all these PT exercises like I have to do them several times a day mm-hmm. so I'm like slowly realizing how like horribly set up work life is in general for people like us who have to do things you know like that Mm -hmm. like I can't just you know roll out my yoga mat and bring like my Pilates well you can you can uh you'll get some weird looks you might get fired but you could I mean you could could try try yeah I should probably just get a second Pilates ball and keep it there. <laughs> yeah. Or get one of those, like, Pilates ball chair things. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. I'd I would, get too bouncy, I think. Yeah, I would have to take a nap after, like, 15 minutes, probably. Oh, yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Both the nap and the bouncy chair. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... Um... You know, there, there have been some other great conferences that I've been to this year, too. Um, you know, the, the Arthritis Foundation has their Juvenile Arthritis Conference, so I went to that this year um, for the first time as a 27-year-old, but that's okay. <laughs> um, well, you're still too young to have arthritis, so. <laughs> yes. If I had a penny, not not just a nickel, a penny, I think I'd be a millionaire. Well, you probably, you probably wouldn't have any medical debt. Oh, that is true. Oh, that would be nice. Um, you know, so went to that and they had some really great inspiring people there. Um, they had Todd Peck, who is involved in NASCAR truck racing. Okay. Who, um, has juvenile arthritis. He's like 25, 26, something like that. Um, and he can't take any medications due to NASCAR's medication policies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, hearing him talk about that and me going, why would you do that still? But yeah. um, if you love something, you find yeah. a way. Um, and then Anna Viafanye, who is in um, Broadway's smash hit new musical, On Your Feet, about the life of Gloria Estefan. I and didn't. her husband. I did not realize that that was a thing, but now I really want to see it. You should look it up. They actually opened the Thanksgiving Day Parade yesterday, um, Macy's Parade, and um, they were on The View today. They've done some other things, but um, if you look up On Your Feet, it's great. Um, I'm already Anna, on the website. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Anna um, has systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis just like me and so that has been really helpful actually for me doing my physical therapy and stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you know like shameless plug I play my ukulele and sing a little bit and 
you know, I'm not ever going to be a Broadway star, but, right. uh, what well, I think I it's, it's be? yeah, it's actually <laughs> really important, I think, to have models of people, like, doing things, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, you know, it, that can also, it can be kind of a, a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, you're like, how come they can do the thing, and I can't do the thing, but also, you know, to see how people are able to figure out how they can do a thing i mean something like broadway is unbelievably grueling their schedules you know they do like two performances a day six days a week and and uh it would i mean even most fully able-bodied people probably would have a really hard time um keeping up with that but Mm -hmm. uh you know having models of different kind of paths that you can take I think is helpful for 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 sure for sure um they also had this great rheumatologist and I can't remember her name starts with a p I think but she um she actually moved to Nevada from Florida after she um started practicing both pediatric and adult rheumatology Mm -hmm. because Nevada was one of the states where they didn't have any pediatric rheumatologists. Oh, wow. And she was like, well, I keep seeing all these old people here in Florida. And what I really want to do is see young people and help them transition uh, transition to adult care. Mm-hmm. So she was like, okay, let's move to Nevada. And, you know, she's now the pediatric rheumatologist in Nevada, which is really going to help so many people. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, there, there are still, I think, four states um, that are all basically connected, which makes it even worse, um, yeah. that, that don't have pediatric rheumatologists, which is really hard. Wow, that is really terrible. Um, yeah. And there was actually, recently, there was a post on the Stanford Medicine blog um, about, uh, they talked to a doctor who is trying to get better support for transitioning from pediatric to Uh, adult care for kids with chronic illnesses you know like the the numbers of kids that are now surviving childhood cancer and also you know living with other chronic illnesses autoimmune conditions that sort of thing um I I forget what the the statistic used to be I think it was like one in a hundred one in you know whatever now it's actually one in ten kids are either survivors of a major illness in their childhood or are chronically ill and they're having a really hard time transitioning from you know having everything more or less taken care of for them you know pediatric care is is a completely different world than adult care you know um and it can have really disastrous consequences for for some people yeah it's really sad i've done some research on it um because the, the school I work at, they're actually starting to finally look at doing, like, a transitions clinic. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's – Cleveland Clinic's just been doing it forever. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but nobody else. But, you know, it's, it's been studied overseas quite a bit, um, this idea of, of a transition clinic or helping other um, – you know, kids with chronic conditions and in the transition to adulthood. It's been studied in England quite a bit. Hmm. And it's really only starting here um, within the last mm, five, six years. And um, Cleveland Clinic, I think, did a, a study with, I think it was um, 
I think it was Crohn's disease patients as children and, and found it was either Crohn's disease or cystic fibrosis. And I don't know why it's between those two, but that's what my head says. Well, they both Uh, start with a C. They do. Right. My brain does that. Like if something starts with the same letter, sometimes that will come out of my mouth and it'll be the wrong thing. And I'm like, well, they're like next to each other in the filing system of my brain. Yeah, there you go. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, they were talking about how, you know, the, the vibe in pediatric clinics is different. You get people who are happy to see you, who want to hear all about your life to the adult clinic where people really don't care. Right. And then you go to like, kids who don't have a very supportive transition team, mm-hmm. whether that's physicians or parents or what have you, end up being far more likely to, um, you know, not take their medicines the way they should be, mm-hmm. to not um, doing follow-up appointments the way they should be, um, and even just dropping out of getting medical care in general, which can be so devastating for so many of us like yeah. you know think about like if you or I didn't have medical care anymore like tomorrow not not because we just didn't have insurance or anything like that we just decided never mind like well I actually did do that like when I was in college and shortly thereafter um you know I had I just was so kind of traumatized by my experience of being blown off so many times and and that sort of thing that I just mm-hmm. was like maybe I'll just you know never go to the doctor again and, and everything will be fine um, and that did not work out very well mm. I, I highly don't recommend it <laughs> yeah let's not do that <laughs> yeah I mean and it's so hard not to because this gets so daunting and every once in a while I'm like what if I just didn't do this anymore you know yeah. it's I am at the point where like that's not really an option um, I know it's and, amazing you know I'm lucky that I don't have something that if I stop taking my medication I'll die you know um, I wouldn't I would be a mess but I, I probably wouldn't actually die. Whereas, you know, kids with sickle cell anemia or HIV, stuff like that, if they don't keep up with their medication regimens, which are, it's not like you, they take a pill before bedtime. The medication regimens for a lot of complex chronic illnesses are really extensive. And so mm-hmm. if they don't have the support to, to you know, keep up with that stuff, um, it can be, you know, you can die, which is mm-hmm. just so sad and so unfortunate. Yeah. One is there's a lot of peer pressure, too. Like, yeah. as you transition to college, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, oh, well, I want to go out and party. Okay, well, I'm on methotrexate, and if I drink more than two drinks in a week, my liver's going to start failing. Right. So I'm not going to come binge drink with you. And then everybody's like, oh, oh she doesn't drink. Like, you know, that mm-hmm. can be really hard. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's so emotionally damaging. I actually, when I was on uh, methotrexate, I've been on it twice. First time I was on the pills, and that just was awful. Your, your body, when it digests the pills, you can get really bad um, stomach aches and intestinal issues. So that was just really too hard for me. Mm-hmm. And then I was on je- injections after that, and it didn't work out. But um, when I was on the pills... And my rheumatologist was like, okay, you can have two drinks a week. If you're going to have more than that, you know, just skip your methotrexate. So then, Oof. I know. That's, <laughs> it's bad. that's a bad combo. 
It is a bad combo. Um, but so then what I would do is methotrexate night was always Friday night because I was working two jobs of going to grad school full time. And so I would like do something nice. I would like make myself some like nice mac and cheese. I would put on some jazzy music. I would get out some homework reading I had to do. And I would pour myself a nice glass of wine. Nice. And even though I probably shouldn't have, I would take my methotrexate with the wine. And okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's that's the one drink I'm going to allow myself this week. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it it maybe wouldn't wasn't the best choice, but it was a good self-love thing. Yeah, because you were, you were basically having date night with yourself. Exactly. You and know. getting stuff done at right. the same time. And literally taking care of yourself by taking your medication. <laughs> and eating delicious mac and cheese. There you go. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was fantastic. You're welcome. Thank you for talking with me. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. If you want to participate in the chronic sex chat on Twitter, again, those will be Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Easter. Follow the hashtag chronic sex. You can find more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. You can find Kirsten on Twitter at Kirsty Schultz and find her blog at NotStandingStillsDisease.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.